Although we were denied homemade preserves and confectionery and wonderful cakes, we were overcompensated with much money to buy toys, specifically mother airplanes by Airfix, and even more specifically, the Supermarine Spitfire Mark 1A. You see, when we got to school in Scotland, we were hoping for Superman comics, but it seemed that American comics got to our old country much faster than the new one. What our new country had in abundance was war comic books from WW2, the big one. We called them trash mags. All of them, it seemed, illustrated the ineptitude of the Germans and the bloody genius of the British. We learned some German, which we never practiced with our father. Schweinhund Englander, Donner und Blitzen, Achtung, Domkopf Englander. Just a few phrases we remember. We thought Schweinhund meant pig dog, but it means arse and probably hole. Donner und Blitzen meant thunder and lightning, which I think were Santa's reindeer also. By the way, that amount of German was much much more of a third language than years of French, but we digress. Actually, let us digress for just a wee bit. We still remember those German phrases to this day. It was in a comic book and fun. Now we, because we're top-notch educators, realized full well that years of French couldn't be taught using comic books, but maybe some more pictures than the odd Tour d'Eiffel, a bloody line drawing of a baguette, and an incessant beep between phrases on those uncomfortable and sticky headphones might have been somewhat more interesting and, dare we say, motivating. Okay, back to the trash bags. Rats of Tobruk, which, by the way, you can buy on Abe Books for 75 bucks. Not that we're looking for anything. The Devil's Cauldron. Fight Back to Dunkirk. Just some of the titles that would do the rounds. These documents, accounts of the war to end all wars, although not peer-reviewed and the veracity not corroborated, were highly sought after. Whoever owned them had no problem sharing it with everyone. Literally everyone. Have you finished with it yet? We were very good at saying that. World War II trash mags is where we gained our pension for the Spitfire. The Supermarine Spitfire is one of the most iconic fighter aircraft of all time. It played a significant role in the Battle of Britain, and Airfix's 172-scale kit is one of their most popular. The kit features finely detailed parts, including a cockpit, landing gear, and a choice of markings. Parts, 36. Scale, 172. Model length, 127 millimeters. Model width, 156 millimeters. Booyah. Those 36 parts were difficult to to glue together and then paint. That was our first mistake. No one was there to teach us how to paint these things. What you had to do was paint the parts on the tree frame that they came in and then glue them together. We did, however, figure out that we could heat up a safety pen and poke holes in the plastic fuselage as if it was in combat and had been strafed by the Messerschmitt BF-109, known to us and the RAF as Messerschmitt ME-109, and the Focke-Wolf FW-190, which made us giggle because of the first name. Talking about giggling, the Rolling Stones had a song called Star Star with a refrain that sounded like Starfucker, Well, because it was. The Stones had to change the name of the song at the insistence of a record producer. Some clever boy played it in the auditorium, much to many masters' chagrin, I'm sure. 
The reason this was even a question was because back in the day, the lyrics of many songs were not so readily available to the listening audience. <clears throat> there were very few LP inner sleeves with lyrics, and if they were, there were very few and far between. Anyway, that was a good day for giggling. Other boys, full of homemade marmalade <clears throat> and cakes of all sorts, didn't have the buying power to get these extremely sought-after replicas of the Air Force of a once-proud island that stood in the path of the Nazi scourge. We needed marmalade, and the other boys, specifically one of them with the initials of BL, needed Spitfires. What to do, what to do. Much like prison, there is no currency allowed to circulate in prep schools. From all the prison movies we saw, they would use whatever was desirable as money. Cigarettes. We didn't have cigarettes, so we'd resort to grub, which one would either enjoy immediately, like us, remember we were under no seconds for lunch and tea, which is dinner, or it would be put in a grub box to be enjoyed later. By the way, grub was sweets or candy, as we would call it today. Some of our favorites were opal fruits, which were made to make your mouth water, something something with a citrus flavor. Of course, the flavor had a U in it. And then there was Mars bars, it was nougat, oh my God, everything. Something that was very new and delicious was this nougat thing. Everything actually was delicious to us, to fill in the holes in our hole. Sugar was a very happy medium, but it never achieved its goal. BL was never interested in grub, so we would barter the boxes of model airplanes for so many days' worth of grub. We believe we got the grub after lunch on three days of the week, but we'll be a bit hazy on that. Anyway, we would barter, say, two days' worth of grub for a model airplane. Even by the standards of those days, it was a nice deal for our friend, which made us realize that we would never make good businessmen. As we graduated, some would say timed out from high school, we realized that schooling wasn't for us, or at least the kind of schooling we were used to. So a friend's dad, who was a big wig at a highly esteemed bank, had a plan for us to work at that bank with a view towards working for the same bank in the old country, in Iran. We donned the suit and put on disgustingly wide ties and went to the trainings. For those of us keeping tabs on the timeline of this chinwag, which jumps back and forth more than the Back to the Future franchise, it was 1979. The historians amongst us will tell us of yet another revolution in our home country, a much bigger one with even greater ramifications than the previously mentioned Mossadegh Bruhaha. As if an alarm clock had gone off, we were politely but vehemently asked to leave the country immediately. Here was the first fork in the road, and as Yogi, the New York Yankee, not the fun-loving picnic basket pinching friend of Boo Boo Bear, famously said, if you come to a fork in the road, take it. So we took it. The fork pointing to the USA, the land of... God strike us down for saying this after all the hullabaloo we made about British trash mags. Real comic books like Superman and our favorite Daredevil. Our aunt, mother's sister, lived in Maryland and not anywhere else in the colonies, thank goodness. The only way to get into the country was to obtain an F-1 visa, which was a student visa. 
Our aunt knew someone on the board of university, and voila, there we were in a university, funnily enough named American University, in the middle of a semester. Unheard of. We remember leaving London in December 1979. The very first Superman was out at the time. And as life would have it, we went to see it with a few of the boys who lived in London. And we told them we were going to the USA to go to university. Not blame them for being skeptical at all. They would ask the name of the university. Theirs being Oxford and Cambridge and Durham and whatever. People would report it was called American University. With no Google to search this particular institution of higher learning, the boys must have thought it was a special university, you know, for the less cognitively endowed fellows. It was a real school, real professors, classes and everything, including a rugby team. Much more on that at a later time. So school again. Hmm. By the way, the other four pointed back to our home country. There was going to be an eight-year war with Iraq and holding American embassy workers hostage for 444 days just to start things off. Only the person who takes an action knows the real reason for the action. But it was speculated that the Iranians didn't want the same thing that happened in 1953 to happen again to this revolution, namely for it to be stolen by the Western devils. So they took over the devil's nest, the nerve and epicenter of any any counteraction, the American embassy. So we're looking at a country in turmoil. We were the right age to be conscripted to the army to fight the Iraqis or come to America drive huge cars compared to the mini minor we had in London, eat huge pizzas. Hmm. Again, what to do, what to do. We chose the pizzas. We managed to get through prep school and public school somehow. More little ditties on that as they emerge. Here's one ditty. Do you remember a song called... Is it Magic? Anyway, it goes something like this. Do you believe in magic in a young girl's heart? How the music can free her whenever it starts. The magic in our heart was rugby. It did free us whenever it started. We weren't any good at it by any means, primarily because our assertion was bred out of us like an undesirable trait is bred out of livestock. This allowed us to be controlled, which was considered essential by our mom. And all that was left in us was docility and aggressive passivity. How devastating that was going to be in our life was beautifully foreshadowed in the rugby pitch. This was said about us by one of our coaches. We lacked the aggression needed to be truly feared. However, we put to rest the myth about front row players. We paraphrase a wee bit, but it probably doesn't mean anything to anybody. Eh. But it means something to me, us. What it did mean was that our life, this one life that we had, was oppressively crippled. You don't have to break your neck to become paralyzed. And it so happens there's one person with a broken neck who didn't allow himself to feel paralyzed. We loved the game of rugby and fell in love with it at first sight. It was as if we'd played it all our lives. Rugby brought us to Haleberry on a tour of English schools by our Scottish school. And after a game in the old cramped changing rooms in what appeared to be the attic of the school, we met the coach of the winning Hillary team, a gentleman by the name of Danny Hearn. 
I'm going to read an excerpt now from an article written by Brendan Gallagher on the 28th of October, 217, excuse me, 2017, in the rugby paper. Rugby can be a game of inches in so many senses, not least 50 years ago, when Danny Hearn moved in to tackle the Burley New Zealand Centre in McRae at Welford Road. As play moved on, Hearn lay eerily motionless. His life changed forever. Hearn was playing for Midlands and home counties, and after the game, the England selectors were going to announce the England team to play the All Blacks the following Saturday. McRae was famed for his crash ball runs. He was one of the earliest and best exponents of the tactic. And despite his slender build, Hearn was considered the most tenacious and fearless tackler in the English game. Their tete-a-tete was going to be pivotal to the match. And just four minutes into the game came their first clash. When you look at the tape and stills, it was perhaps three inches away from being the perfect tackle. This was no reckless adrenaline fuel challenge. McRae, as expected, charged hard, but Hearn lay in wait and tracked him from the left, looking to pin his opponent with a fierce low tackle from the side, not front on. The Bradford Center chose his moment carefully, but misjudged the approach by fractions. Instead of getting his head behind McRae's backside, as he wrapped his arm around the Kiwi, hit McRae's hip bone full on. Another couple of inches to the right, and his head would have hit McRae's rump and slid safely round to the back. Instead, the impact of the collision broke Hearn's neck and in an instant dramatically changed the course of his life. So Mr. Hearn was brought up the many flights of stairs to our changing room in the wheelchair just to thank us and to say that despite us losing, we played a great game. Mr. Hearn hadn't at that point, nor would he for the rest of his life, feel paralyzed. He would teach at Haleberry, be loved by his pupils and anyone who came in contact with him, and then move to Ireland and live with his live a well will excuse me, live a well lived life with his devoted wife Jean. We would call her Mrs. Hearn. Please read the article if you can. It's attached to this podcast. It was very has very little to do with rugby and a great deal to do with what might be the answer to the meaning of life. One other quick excerpt. Life is good and fulfilled. He can walk about the 20 yards or so to his car outside, and when the weather is fine, he and Jean enthusiastically explore the endless beauty of West Cork. On other days, he will enjoy a bit of crack. C-R-A-I-C. Irish for fun. Or a good time with Tom Kiernan and other Munster luminaries. May I add the spirit of Richard Harris to those Munster luminaries? And that day, we had one of our many epiphanies without really knowing it. A great many things happened to us without us knowing it. We did know that at that point, we wanted to be a teacher, just like Mr. Hearn. 